Amen. Thanks, Erica. If you're with us today for the first time during Advent, uh, you're catching us in the middle of a series here where we're taking familiar Christmas carols and looking at the scripture that give rise to their lyrics. And the aim is to hopefully ignite our souls, uh, connect our souls and our hearts with what it is that we're singing, because oftentimes the lyrics of these Christmas carols are a little bit more nostalgic than they actually are worshipful. And so we started this a couple weeks ago by looking at joy to the world in Psalm 98, reminding ourselves of all of the reasons for great joy here during Advent season. Last week, Adam walked us through Hark the Herald Angels Sing, directed our hearts to the reality that Jesus has made it so that God and sinners can be reconciled. He looked at Ephesians chapter two to do that. This morning is our third Christmas carol, which is Go Tell It on the Mountain. The scripture that we're going to root ourselves in is Isaiah 52. So if you have a Bible and you wanna open up to there, I would invite you to do so. If you've got a hard copy Bible there in front of you and you just sort of let it fall open to the middle, that's probably gonna be uh, in Psalms and then just turn a little bit to the right. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, and you'll find it. But then flip a bunch because Isaiah is a big book and we're toward the end in chapter 52. Here's how we're gonna do this this morning. A little bit of quick history uh, about the song itself, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And then we're gonna work our way through Isaiah 52 as well as some of the kind of surrounding context in the book of Isaiah before we jump forward to the gospel accounts of Jesus's birth and then a couple of application points, if you will. My hope this morning is to, to shift some perspective within our hearts. Go tell it on the mountain, evangelistic. Uh, I wanna assure you right up front, there will be no evangelism guilt trips this morning. There won't be any shoulds or oughts or you need tos this morning. I wanna shift perspective. And the perspective that I want us to try to shift to is that followers of Jesus have received the honor of proclaiming and portraying the realities of, gospel, of the gospel and the kingdom of God. We've received the honor of getting to do that. We'll work our way toward that end. First, just a little bit of history on the song. There's intentionality in the song choice this morning. I recognize that Go Tell It on the Mountain probably is not as familiar to you as Joy to the World or Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's very likely that you knew the chorus of that song and then we got into the verses and you were like, uh, how's this go? And then we got back to the chorus and you were locked back in. But the reason for this song choice is that there is rich tradition within Christian music that comes from places outside of like white guys in the 1700s who wrote hymns in Europe. One of those rich traditions is what scholars and historians of music lump together as Negro spirituals. These were songs that were sung and passed on by enslaved black men and women on plantations throughout the American South. And the complete history of any one of these songs is often unknown. But in general, they share some DNA. The vast majority of enslaved peoples were not able to read or write. And so when they would hear stories from the Bible, 
since they likely didn't have a copy of the Bible themselves, and even if they did, they probably couldn't read it, what they would do is that they would take the arc of those stories, they would set them to music, and they would sing them in the field. And then those songs would get passed along, generation to generation, but also plantation to plantation, as men and women were sold from one place to another. And after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, once the Civil War ended and the 13th Amendment was ratified, which abolished slavery in 1865, the singing of these songs began to wane. And not wanting to lose that piece of history and culture, a small handful of freed black men and women began trying to collect, annotate, and publish and perform these songs. Some of them remain incredibly well-known today. Titles such as, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. This Little Light of Mine. And our carol this morning, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Now the oral nature of these songs, the fact that they were passed around orally, even makes identifying the original lyrics somewhat difficult. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Some of the earliest copies of this song from the early 1900s say, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's actually an Easter version of the song. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus lives again. What's the original? Not entirely sure, although the first three verses, which we sang this morning of Go Tell It on the Mountain, would appear to point toward this being a Christmas song. It was written down, given musical annotation, and published in 1907 by a man named John Wesley Work Jr. And he was one of a handful of people who led the charge right around the turn of the 1900s to collect and preserve these songs. He also brought many of them into popular consciousness as he led and sang with a group called the Fisk Jubilee Singers. That's why we know the song today, because a group of individuals did the work necessary to preserve these, not just so that we could sing them in church services, but so that their theology could be passed on from generation to generation. Now, with all of that in mind, what in the world did we just sing a few minutes ago? And what does it mean? The song and the three verses that are most commonly sung are clearly a recitation or a paraphrasing of Luke chapter 2, the birth of Jesus. But there's more to it than just Luke 2. The tag in the chorus, go tell it on the mountain, is actually a phrase drawn from Isaiah 52. So we're going to start there. We'll zoom out, look at Isaiah, and then we'll jump forward to the Gospels. So if you've got Isaiah 52 open in front of you, I'm going to read verse 7 down to verse 12, the last half of the chapter. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace and brings good, our news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. 
For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Leave. Leave. Go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, for you will not leave in a hurry and you will not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for your word. God, I pray that you would give us a diligence this morning uh, an endurance and a perseverance even as we look into your word. God, I pray that your spirit would remind us anew and afresh that the plan to send Jesus into the world to save sinners is not something that originated at Jesus's birth. It's something that you had planned and foretold all throughout eternity. God, help us to see that this morning. Shift our perspective about what it means to get to proclaim that message, to portray the realities of the kingdom of God. God, do that work here among us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna start picking our way through this passage. Now, I want to be honest and upfront with you as we do this. You know the part in Shrek, right, where Donkey and Shrek are, uh, they're like walking through a field and Shrek says, ogres are like onions. And Donkey says, they stink? To which Shrek replies, no. And he says, they make you cry? Shrek says, no. And he says, if you leave them out in the sun, they turn brown and sprout little white heads. And Shrek says, no. And he gets frustrated and he says, ogres have... Layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. This is going to have layers this morning. Working with any of the Old Testament prophetic books requires peeling back sort of layers of understanding in order to drill down to what it is that the prophet was trying to say. So this is going to take a little bit of effort on all of our parts. There's going to have to be some teaching before we can get to preaching. And now I promise to try to be as entertaining in that as possible to keep your attention. But I'm asking, hang with me for a little while here until we're able to jump back into Luke chapter two. Layer number one is the context that the prophet Isaiah writes in. He was a prophet to the people of Judah in the 700s BC. Now, God's people, Israel, at this time are split into two kingdoms. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel, in the time of Isaiah's life, is taken into exile by the Assyrians. Isaiah arrives on the scene as a prophet to Judah, telling them, if you don't repent, stop worshiping false gods and give up your idolatry, we're going to be taken into exile too. That's his message. That does happen. Between 606 BC and 586 BC, the Babylonians come in successive waves and they carry Judah into exile. At the end of that, the temple, well, Jerusalem is overrun and the temple that Solomon built is destroyed. There's not a quiz over any of that, but you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 25. 
Isaiah is warning of that event happening, pleading with the people of Judah to repent and to worship God only. But he also looks through that event. The last third or maybe quarter of the book of Isaiah is pretty much given over to a message of comfort, that after the exile, God will redeem his people. And so the back portion of Isaiah, where our passage is found today, is the prophet saying, yes, this exile is coming. Yes, the temple will be destroyed. Yes, you're going to be kicked out of your land. But there will be a day after that when God comes and comforts his people. So our passage today begins, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald. The feet of the herald, layer number two. Without computers and cell phones, televisions and radio towers and all of our modern sort of conveniences, the process of communicating a message to a large audience looked very different in Isaiah's day or even Jesus's day than it does for us today. If you want to disseminate information to a large group of people in our day, you post it on the internet or you leverage modern media like news outlets. In the case of Amber Alerts, one just gets pushed to your phone automatically and everybody receives it. If there's severe weather coming, we've got towers that let everyone in the city know via siren that trouble is on the way. That's not how it worked in the 700s BC. Our passage this morning is a prophecy that one day a messenger will come into Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. And the message that the herald brings will be so wonderful that even the messenger's feet will be considered beautiful. Okay, people walked everywhere at this time. Feet were gross. Feet are still gross, but feet were particularly gross at this time. Caked in dirt, calloused, sores, they're torn up. And Isaiah's prophecy is that one day a messenger is going to come in among God's people with news so wonderful that even those nasty feet will be considered beautiful. Okay, well, what's the message? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns. Look down Verse 9, be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 12, for you will not leave in a hurry and you will not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Peace, good news, salvation, God's reign, comfort, redemption, his presence. That's what the message is going to be. Okay, layer number three, what's up with heralds? The mass communication system of the day primarily took the form of messengers. These were individuals who would carry a specific message to either a city or to an entire nation on behalf of the king. And so sometimes a herald would come into your city and let you know that a military victory had been won. That would be like Pheidippides. He's the guy who ran from Marathon, Greece into Athens, burst into the city, shouted, Nike, victory, and then he dropped dead on the spot. That's a herald. Sometimes a herald would come into a city and let it be known that an opposing military was on the way, 
and you needed to prepare yourselves for the fight that was about to take place. Sometimes a herald would come into your city and announce a decree from the king or the emperor. That would be like if you thought about Esther. In the book of Esther, the king issues multiple decrees. They're stamped with his royal ring, and then that message is carried by a herald to cities all throughout the kingdom so that everyone is on the same page. Sometimes a herald would come into the city and let you know that some battle had taken place way far away, but now your city is under new management because someone has taken over the empire. Sometimes a herald would come into the city and let you know that the king himself was on the way and you needed to prepare yourself to host him. The other important piece to this is that the king didn't just send anybody. It was a massive honor to be a herald. It was also a massive responsibility. You had to get the message right when you arrived there, but when you stepped into the city, you were also a representative of the king. Being the king's herald was a huge trust. Being given that position was something that was a massive honor to the individual who was chosen to be the herald, to bear the king's message and represent the king and the kingdom in the places where they traveled. So what is Isaiah seeing here in chapter 52? Well, Isaiah foresees a day when God's reign, right, the king, will bring peace, salvation, comfort, and redemption to God's people. And so what Isaiah is prophesying is a day when a herald arrives with such incredibly good news about the reign of God, this new kingdom that's coming with salvation and peace and comfort and redemption in the very presence of God. There's going to be a day where a herald is going to arrive to God's people and let them know about that. And the message is going to be so wonderful that even feet are beautiful. Okay, verse 7 though. How beautiful on the mountains. Well, what's that about? Ancient cities were often built in similar settings. So because of the need for protection and also the need for water, Cities would be built in valleys where streams would run. That would provide natural protection on either side as well as a source for water. Now, when we think of mountains, we think of the Rockies, like 14,000-foot peaks that tower above, like, the landscape. None of those over here. These mountains are more what we would call big hills or something. They're like 3,000 feet tall. That positioning meant that when the herald was approaching the city, he would have to work his way down into the valley. And so you could see whoever was approaching as they sort of cut back and forth across the mountains to reach the gates of your city. Verse 8 references a watchman. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices shouting for joy together, for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. You would station people on the city wall or at the gates of the city whose sole job it was to just watch the hills and see who's coming. And then based on the flag that they were carrying or the size of the group that was coming, the watchmen, before the herald even arrived, could alert the city whether they thought bad news was coming in or good news was coming in. Okay, so where does that leave us? 
Isaiah foresees a day where a herald is going to come through the mountains and from a distance, the watchmen of the city are going to be able to see that he's bringing good news. And before he even arrives with his beautiful feet, they're going to be shouting for joy over what is walking into the city. And everyone will rejoice. And the watchmen will lift up a shout. And the nations will see, we're told. And then in verse 11, you get the reminder that all of this is coming in a time when Israel is in exile. So it's a metaphorical kind of picture. The message is so great that everyone is going to leave the cities where they've been exiled and head back to Jerusalem, which currently lays in ruins. They're not going to touch anything unclean. They're not going to carry anything from those cities. They're not going to have to leave in a hurry and they're not going to have to take flight. Like think Exodus from Egypt because the Lord is going to go before them and be their rear guard as God's people are collected back together. That's the picture here in Isaiah 52, 7 to 12. And the message of the herald is so wonderful that feet are beautiful. Okay, if we zoom out, there's one more component to this. Isaiah not only tells the people of Judah that exile will come, he tells them that there will also be a day when God will redeem them, and he tells them how that's going to happen. The book of Isaiah contains four servant songs prophecies about who it is that's going to accomplish this work. The first is in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. You are told that this servant is going to be spirit-filled. The second is in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. You're told that this servant is going to be like a prophet. Listen, listen, the servant will say. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 11 is the third servant song. And it tells us that the servant will be obedient. And then the most well-known of those starts in Isaiah 52, right after this passage and works all the way through Isaiah 53. And it tells us that the servant will suffer. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains and we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. 
He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. This coming servant, filled with the Spirit, prophet of all prophets, obedient, he will suffer. Our passage today is dropped in the middle of all of those servant songs. This servant is going to save God's people from sin through his suffering. And we know on this side that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the servant. But from the moment Isaiah writes this prophecy, everyone's looking. Who will it be? Who will it be who by their suffering is going to bring us peace and salvation and comfort and redemption and such good news that a herald would arrive and announce it to everyone and even his nasty feet would be beautiful? Everyone's waiting and watching. And so if we were to sort of take this statement from Isaiah and like drill it a little bit more specific, Isaiah foresees that Jesus, the servant, will usher in the peace, salvation, comfort, and redemption of God's reign. Isaiah just doesn't know his name or when he's going to come. Flip to the book of Luke. Chapter two. This is the story of Jesus' birth. It gets read at this time very frequently as it should be. But take all of that from Isaiah and listen to what Luke writes. This is Luke chapter two, starting in verse eight. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them, they returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. It's not the only place before the birth of Jesus where someone interacts with an angel. 
Zechariah, the priest, he has an interaction with the angel, same message. Joseph, in the book of Matthew, he has an interaction with an angel, same message. Only in that one, Joseph is told, you will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. These angels burst onto the scene before the birth of Jesus, and what is their proclamation? Good news, peace, salvation, comfort, redemption, the reign of God, it's coming, and it's coming through this baby. The son of the most high, he's going to have a kingdom without end. The baby is the suffering, obedient, spirit-filled servant who's ushering in the peace and salvation and comfort and redemption of God's reign. So what were we singing in this song? Well, way more than just a summary of Luke chapter 2. Go tell it on the mountain, links together the prophecy of Isaiah and the birth of the Savior. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Isaiah 52 has been fulfilled. While shepherds kept their watching over silent flocks by night, behold, throughout the heavens there shone a holy light. The shepherds feared and trembled when low above the earth rang out the angel's chorus that hailed the Savior's birth. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born, and God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. Now there are two more verses we don't typically sing. When I was a seeker, I sought both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me, and he showed me the way. He made me a watchman upon the city wall. And if I am a Christian, I am the least of all. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. That's a heck of a song, huh? Okay, so what do we do with that? Like, cool. (laughs) Paul uses this exact passage from Isaiah 52, verses 7 to 12, in two different places in his New Testament epistles. Unshockingly, he uses the passage to call his readers to two things. Two things that are the exact same tasks of a herald. And so rather than inventing our own applications, we can just allow scripture to do this for us. If you've got a Bible or you're on your phone and you want to flip to Romans chapter 10, this is the first time that Paul draws upon Isaiah 52. Now Romans 1 through 9, if you were to just summarize as succinctly as possible, Paul is saying that in order to be righteous, we have to be justified. That righteousness and justification are by grace alone, through faith alone. Chapter 10, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, how does Paul view the role of followers of Jesus in light of the gospel? He views us as heralds. 
We are those who come bearing the message of peace and salvation and comfort and redemption in the reign of God. So application number one, as followers of Jesus, it is an honor to proclaim the realities of the gospel and the kingdom of God. I said, no evangelism guilt trips this morning. No, you ought to be doing this. No, you should be doing this. No quotas for how frequently you should be doing this and with how many people. Instead, a perspective shift. You get to do it. Like, I love to run. You guys, most of you know that. Sometimes I'll be out running and the weather is awful or I've had a long day and I'm really tired or the alarm was set super early and it's dark and it's cold outside and I'm stumbling my way through the run, frustrated that I have to run. Hold on. No one forced me out the door. I get to do that. The perspective matters entirely. So... How do you think about evangelism? I was on a plane ride home from California uh, a week ago. I somehow ended up, uh, providentially, it's not somehow, I ended up seated next to a man from Scotland. On a, yeah, there you go. <laughs> on a plane ride from Denver to Kansas City, which is normally a very short plane ride, but we sat on the runway for over an hour before we even took off. And so this... Man and I had a conversation for like two and a half hours. We covered every possible topic you could think of. And as we're beginning our final descent into Kansas City, he says, what do you do? I'm like, man, it has been such a long day. Are we really about to do this? I said, I'm a pastor. He cussed. (laughs) And he said, Is there anything from our conversation that I need to apologize for? (laughs) And I'm thinking in my head, I think I have to do this right now. I guess I have to tell him. Oh no, I get to. (laughs) Like God saw fit in his grace to choose me as a herald. Why? I didn't deserve it. I've done nothing to earn that role. But go tell it on the mountain. Like, how beautiful are your feet, yours, when you get to herald the message of Christ? Just the change of perspective is everything. You don't have to. If you don't share the message of the gospel, God's not going to smite you with lightning from heaven or something. You get to because he's chosen you as a herald. Okay, the second time Paul uses this passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul, uh, in this area of 2 Corinthians, has been telling followers of Jesus that they've got this ministry of reconciliation. That's what Adam talked about last week. We proclaim that God and sinners can be reconciled through Jesus. We proclaim that humanity can be reconciled to one another even. And Paul says that that ministry of reconciliation is one of bringing the joyful news of Jesus to others, no matter what suffering or affliction may come as a result. And then he sort of turns this like hard corner 
in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. And he says this, Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Two quick notes here. This is not a call to like avoid unbelievers, to not be friends with people who aren't Christian. Paul is giving a warning about avoiding partnership with false teachers and false prophets. Literally, don't be yoked to them is what he's saying. The second quick note is that the Old Testament quotation there in verses 16, 17, and 18 is actually a smashing together of three different passages. That's something Paul does regularly. Verse 17 is what comes out of Isaiah 52. Come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing. At the end of that, Paul draws his conclusion. Chapter seven, verse one. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Okay, so how does Paul view the role of followers of Jesus in light of the gospel and in light of this passage from Isaiah? Well, the second application, if you will, would be that as followers of Jesus, it is an honor to portray the realities of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Look, we who are the people of God bear the incredible responsibility and honor of representing the likeness of the king in the kingdom. Look, no sanctification guilt trips this morning either. No like, you need to get this cleaned up and that cleaned up and here are the seven steps by which to do that. Just a perspective shift. Like you get to be sanctified. You get to have your flesh separated from its longings for all the stuff in the world that constantly disappoint you. Like God loves you enough that he would care to smooth out the rough edges of your sinful flesh that you might have more deeper joy in him. What a gift. I mean, like, God loves me too much to leave me to the hell of my own creation. He loves me too much to let me just stumble around in the pain of my heart's attachment to things that can't uh, ultimately satisfy. Like, you get to be sanctified. Now, I understand. You're in the middle of trying to break out of some particular sin struggle. You don't usually sit there at your kitchen table as tears flow and think to yourself, oh, thank you for this privilege, God. It's so wonderful. But it is an honor that he would love you enough to sanctify you out of your sin so that you might represent the reality of the king and the beauty of the kingdom. And then every place you go, every circumstance you step into, every time you walk into the office or out onto the sports field to coach your team, every time you walk into the school or into the auditorium to watch a performance, how beautiful are your feet that you would represent the kingdom with a message so glorious 
that the herald's gross feet are beautiful. Like what a privilege. What an honor that is. Followers of Jesus have received the honor of proclaiming and portraying the realities of the gospel and the kingdom of God. He reigns, Isaiah 52. He's brought peace, salvation, comfort, and redemption to his people, Isaiah 52. Now we have the honor of being the herald who proclaims and portrays that reality, Isaiah 52, because he sent the baby, Luke 2, to save his people and bring them peace and comfort and salvation and redemption. And now he's chosen you, his people, to just go and bear the message. What an honor. Go tell it on the mountains, over the hills and everywhere, that Jesus Christ is born. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.